Hello, Detroit in the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Lower East Side here in the city of Detroit, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now, a content partner to the new BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Gibbons-Davidson. Oh, that's going to take some getting used to. Y'all uh, hear his last no name? David. <laughs> get used to it. <laughs> Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Today, we are delighted to welcome State Center. Adam Ollier to the show. Senator Ollier represents the second district that includes parts of Detroit, Gross Point, Hamtramck, Harper Woods, and Highland Park. Elected to the Senate in 2018, Adam is a born and raised Detroiter, a husband, and a father. Adam, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. We're excited to have you. How's everybody doing? How's how was your days? Everybody feeling all right? Everybody doing good? It's just, we are in hard times. How's everybody faring? Today was just one of those long days, you know, so I'm, I'm feeling good, but it was a long day. Yeah, I, I have been doing really well. I mean, we had session and that was super frustrating because the legislature is not doing what it, it needs to be. But since, I don't know, maybe a month and a half into COVID, I've spent every day being grateful for the things that are going well. And, you know, my family is well, and we've got a second on the way. And, oh, you know, I didn't world know that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Yep, so, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So AJ or Jun, you know, Adam Jr. will be here uh, first week in November. So we're just trying to get ready for him. Wow. Yeah. yeah it's crazy. But AJ. We're excited. Like mm-hmm. no, that's, that's actually, you know, uh, a really good place to be in. I've been having focus groups all over the city and I've been starting each focus group asking people what is bringing them joy um in this moment and you know a lot of folks have to take a step back and think about it because we don't really center around joy we have to do some thinking and oddly enough there have been some moments of joy that people have been able to share that have been you know really positive and uplifting so that's a that's a cool that's a cool outlook to have i was good my whole life i center on joy every day I think a lot of people believe that one bad thing can ruin their day. It only takes one good thing for my day to be made. I just need one. I like that. My life was made last night uh, because Randy and Monica did a versus for the culture. (laughs) um, Growing up in the 90s just never Mm -hmm. felt better, man. I mean, all, all of the hits, okay? And mm-hmm. the best part about watching the verses is watching all of the comments because the internet is so petty and undefeated. Mm-hmm. And watching watching Brandy, these two legends, right? These two R&B queens uh, battle it out on verses, loving their music. You could tell they still love their music and each other's music. It was it was just it was great. One point oh. two million people were watching that with me. But, you know, there were so many people, I watched it too, um, but there's so many people I saw who were criticizing and saying, oh, I don't like any of their music and whatever. And, you know, this is not my, my year. And I'm like, don't you have children that age? Because I remember <laughs> being a parent, you know, you had to listen yeah. to play Brandy and Monica. Yes. So for my kids, 
it was like reliving. And I was actually, you know, so crazy when I think about the fact that when they were singing those songs, I was probably about your age, Orlando. So it was kind of interesting too, um, how the world changes. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And it just, it felt like a moment, like, our forever first lady Michelle Obama was on and commenting. It was, it was, it was just a moment. You know what I mean? That I, I. Well, who won? Say it again. Who won? Uh, well, for me, Monica's always going to win. <laughs> I, I'm just a fan of Monica's. I'm a bigger fan of Monica than I am of Brandy. But that's because the, the culture won. I'll say that. I think Monica is a better singer. Brandy had better songs. Yeah, yeah. There are people who will say just the opposite. I would, say, just, I would say the opposite. Yeah, people say that Monica is a singer-singer. This is what I'm hearing. Brandy is a singer-singer. I'm sorry, I messed it up. Brandy is a singer-singer. You know, people are going on about her runs. And because I'm not as um, skilled at hearing that technique, it was harder for me to understand her greatness. But one thing I noticed was when Brandy sang over every single song that Monica had out. So, you know, Brandy was singing her song. She was singing Monica's songs. Brandy certainly has a lot more confidence um, in how she positions herself. She's just a fan. What would you say? Brandy's a, a real fan of Monica's, and Brandy is a fan of singing. Monica is too, but Brandy is, like, like you said, a technical singer she can hear notes and harmonize i don't think monica is as skilled as an artist to be able to do that like brandy was trying to get monica to sing with her and monica was like i'm not singing with you to her credit <laughs> monica was smart monica's like no nah, because monica couldn't find no note to sing with brandy like you know what i mean like you have to be able to hear that you know what i mean as a singer i know like you got to be able to like i'm tone deaf so i can't help you <laughs> No rhythm, no musical, not a musical bone in my body. Oh, man, that's so unfortunate. So unfortunate. Yes. <laughs> it's time for Fresh Off the Press, news that we are thinking about. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Donna, Fresh Off the Press. Amid racial reckoning, Detroit activist Press Whitmer for environmental justice. Olivia Lewis and Kelly House are reporting for Bridge Detroit. So I'm really excited to um, have this story come from Bridge Detroit, our content partner. Um, but it was also a story that hit home because you're talking about an area that is just north of the primary target area for ECN. Um, and a lot of the protest is being led by our friend Mark Covington who um, has roles in the community I really didn't know about. Um, apparently he is the co-chair of the- what is Against the expansion the, of U.S. Ecology. Of the U.S. Ecology, against U.S. Ecology. Now, I didn't even know U.S. Ecology existed until Fiat Chrysler expanded. And part of the land deal was to expand U.S. Ecology site. And what this article does not necessarily reference is the connection between the U.S. ecology expansion, the land swaps and everything that went around that, and also the approval for them to um, increase their, um, for them to expand. But at any rate, um, U.S. ecology was allowed to expand in an area that is um, not densely populated. 
such that there's nobody within 300 uh, feet of the, or 300 yards of um, their, their expansion area. Yeah. And because the community input um, process is so, you know, limited and so restrictive, if you don't have anybody there, then the hearings, there's nobody who gets to um, push back. But we know how air is. Um, you don't have to be within 300 feet to breathe the same air as the people who are, or um, you don't have to have your, your water supply is not restricted to 300 yards or whatever the, the parameter is. Um, so I think that Mark Covington and others are making a good point that the state needs to be more inclusive and needs to really work harder with people in the community to make sure there is no environmental harm no more environmental injustice. So it was a good article. Um, it mentioned Nick Leonard um, with the um, Great Lakes Environmental Law Center and referenced my friend, um, Regina Strong, Strong as yeah. the social justice uh, person from um, the department from Eagle. And, um, you know, uh, Monica Lewis Patrick honored um, Regina for um, her strong stand and insisting that water be um, shut back on, that the moratorium of against water shutoffs be put in place and the water turn on be mandated. So um, I felt like I was reading about friends and I really am um, hopeful that ECN can continue working with some of our neighbors to bring about greater protections because environmental justice is not, you know, just a thing about the environment. It is about our health. It's about our um, physical health, about our um, mental and social health and it's about the economic health of an area when you poison an area you really do stop economic development from happening around that area so i thought it was a great story and um you know yeah and even, work, mark and all the others who um, are, are standing up yeah there are some technical things that you know were identified in the article just around the amount of waste that the expansion is allowed to put in the sewer system and some of the the air emissions um, and things of that sort um, in this area uh, just north of 94. I want to, I don't know if the, if the neighborhood has a name per se, but I will call it the Kettering neighborhood where Kettering High School um, used to be. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, stands out for me in, in this story is whenever there is, um, a disparity, be it uh, economic or even environmental, it seems that a marginalized group of people are often at the foot of that disparity. And so we're talking about an area that is uh, predominantly uh, Black. And when we think that environmental racism and environmental justice doesn't affect us, that um, in uh, advocating for um, environmental policy that doesn't do harm to communities is something that is far-fetched and doesn't touch us. I would challenge us all to rethink that narrative. This has absolutely everything to do with your health, the health of your family. We, uh, at e when, we when I was at ECM, Donna is still working on this, uh, you know, looking at social determinants of health um, and trying to plan interventions to prevent uh, things like asthma, type 2 diabetes, um, and obesity in the 48214 zip code that has a chemical plant placed in there. I mean, these are, and then, you know, even with the Fiat Chrysler expansion, these are very real things with very real 
disparate outcomes. And kudos to our friend Mark Covington and Regina Strong and a litany of other people doing work um, in this area and putting demands on the governor and her administration to really crack down on some of what has been allowed in these, these expansions and developments happening on the east side. Yeah, sorry I dropped off, not sure what happened there, but I do want to say a couple things. One, you know, when people look at democracy, democracy is not, doesn't happen in November. Um, democracy happens 365 days a year. That is um, something that my friend Keith Ellison talked about, mm -hmm. political engagement and the fact that political engagement and democracy is carried out when you elect people. And then once they are elected, when you communicate with them to promote accountability. Um, when you look at corporations and businesses that invest in candidates and pay towards their campaigns, they don't stop at the election day. They continue communicating their preferences all during the terms of office. And so um, I think that this is democracy in action. And um, I'm hopeful that Whitmer is hearing some of this, especially in light of the Racial Justice Task Force for COVID-19 and the great health disparities that have been uncovered by that, um, that a lot of them are connected to um, respiratory illness and respiratory illness is directly connected to air quality. So um, I'm hopeful that we will continue making progress. What are your thoughts on this, Adam? You know, it's funny that you mentioned the, this facility. It's actually in my district and has been a, uh, a big, you know, issue. And throughout that entire process, people have been on, on both sides being very upset about um, where it is, because it's also right on the Hamtramck border. So a number of, of the Hamtramck folks have been concerned about it. I think from, uh, from my stance, there are, there are only three facilities in the state that can handle the type of materials that this one can. There's this one right here. There's one in... Um, I want to say Romulus and, and one in kind of northern Michigan. And so I think that the challenge that we have is it's absolutely the responsibility of every single person who lives in a neighborhood, who lives in a community to push and to say that the space should be better, that it should be safer, that it should be cleaner. And as a state, we have to figure out what those acceptable standards are. And if the question is, are they uh, strong enough? I think a scientist needs to be saying that. And if somebody who lives there next door is the expert on saying, hey, this, this, this is safe or is not safe. But we've got to figure out really clear rules about what those things are. And from a, you know, as, as my role in the legislature, it's important that we have these kind of facilities because I need places for this waste to go and to be handled in a clean way. So one of the big things that we talked about last year was the uh, green ooze. Remember the green ooze on 696? Mm -hmm. uh, that, so not only was th that was the place that got all the, the press and the publicity, but he also had another facility over... Um, just over by Wayne State. What's the name of that neighborhood? Um, over by the football field. Name yeah. falling on my brain. But, you know, he had a facility over there where he was illegally storing these materials. And so we've got to get, we've got to have spaces like U.S. Ecology. We've got to regulate them to make sure that they are not polluting the ground, that they aren't doing these kind of things. But those spaces have got to exist and they've got to exist as close as we can to the places that the materials are being used. So the shipping and so it's not dangerous. But historically, those places and the places that we yes. found opportunity to put them are around black and brown people. And so what we end up being is the, the dumping ground of waste. And um, we receive it. And people say, well, it makes economic good sense. But if it makes economic good sense, let's put it in Gross Point and see how it's handled. Or let's put it in Northfield and see how it's handled. You cannot 
disassociate the environmental racism from the economic need because economic need will always exist. The more that we don't put these things around marginalized people, the more we're going to fight for those protections and not allow companies to um, cut, you know, um, shortchange environmental protections and get caught and pay fines and get caught and pay fines and get mm -hmm. caught and pay fines and have people say, well, this is just the way it is. So while I understand that waste has to happen, the fact that the incinerator was located in the east side of Detroit, where a whole bunch of black people live and a whole bunch of poor people live is not coincidental. It's not accidental. These are people who are considered as disposable as the waste surrounding them. And that's my And concern. you're right. No, and, and you're right. And you are 100% correct. And uh, my mom was uh, showing me a photo. The very first protest I ever went to was her taking me to protest the incinerator. You're 100% right about where these things have been located. The reality today is we are not building new facilities like this. So it's incumbent upon us to make sure that they are as safe as they possibly can. And to your point, that we find ways to make them more equitable. So I have legislation, and I will talk about legislation later, but I have some fairly controversial legislation uh, about aggregate mining that uh, some people are like, hey, why would you do that? Because I want the standard to be the standard. And these very affluent individuals are complaining, uh, and rightfully so, because everyone should be advocating for their community. But they are upset because their local community will not have the ability to say no. And my point is, hey, your local community should be advocating for everybody statewide. So if the rules are good enough, for the state, then they're good enough to be in your neighborhood the same way that they'd be good enough for mine. Because these facilities are in Highland Park, right? They're right up the street from me. I, one of these facilities was right next to where I played Little League football. That is the challenge and the thing that I think we've got to continue to be working on and to be working on it from both sides. So every single person who lives near one of these facilities should be saying, hey, this is unacceptable. I want this thing gone and to be working as hard and as fast as they can to do it. And I want to be supportive of that. But you know, I think that when you have structural racism, it's not enough to say, well, it's here, so let's figure out how to make it work. When you have structural racism, then you have to figure out how to restructure things so that you deal with it. If, there is, um, the, if there's an inconvenience in moving things outside of population, dense, densely populated communities, people do it all the time when they want a space. If Dan Gilbert, for any reason, wanted that space, he would find a way and find a rationale to get things moved. Racism and environmental justice should be just as compelling a topic. Now, I'm glad that you mentioned the mining thing because that's going to answer one of our questions. We did wonder about that. And yeah. what I'm hearing from you is that you're trying to create a single standard moving forward. And I think that's really good. I think that if what you're saying is these things are concentrated in areas that poor and black people live in then or brown people live in, then that's a good thing. But here's the thing, unless you create an incentive or a penalty for companies to continue to locate these things in poor communities, even if the local neighborhoods can't regulate, they do it anyway. So I think that um, there's so many factors that go into it that you have to do more than create neutrality. You have to create intentionality around racial justice in order to get there. So um, I appreciate you explaining that. And it certainly is a step in the right direction from what I'm hearing your, your thinking is and that it helps me understand it. But I think we need to go farther than that. We you do, we, a we absolutely do. There's, there's no question we need to go way further than we can. And that's why it's so important for people to continue to advocate because the leverage that I have is the work and the, you know, the work that you are doing 
the work that, you know, people on the ground are, are pushing and saying, hey, they want 10 steps. And I'm saying, hey, guys, you got to at least give me three. You got to give me five. You got to give me seven. You got to, you know, it's to move the ball and to keep moving the space. And that is only possible because people are saying, hey, this thing is completely unacceptable. This is not going to work. We've got to keep moving the ball. And so, you know, when you're in a role like this, I, I firmly believe that I have a responsibility to deliver. I don't believe that that, is, that means that we have, you know, finished or that we've accomplished a thing. It just means things need to be better every chance I get them to make them better, recognizing that we still have a whole long way to go, right? There's so many issues when we talk about what systemic racism looks like, what environmental justice should be and what it is or is not, that progress is where, where I'm looking forward to, noting that people like you and Orlando and, and Mark and, and uh, Guy will continue to be saying, hey, Adam, that's not far enough. I mean to be saying, you're right. But the people who I'm working with, they didn't want any of this. So you keep saying that's nowhere near far enough. So I can come back and say, we're going to do something, right? We got to do that's something that, and then more something. And, that, and that's what I mean by, you know, um, democracy not being a single day in a year or a single season. But I think also we need to build allies because if everybody who lived near U.S. ecology stood up and said, hell no, they don't have enough influence to move the needle. The needle only gets moved when we can somehow build um, allies with people who actually care. One of the interesting things to me is that we are working on an effort to redevelop Mac Avenue. And when Fiat Chrysler got the permit, um, the air quality permit, people in Gross Point said, wait a minute, we don't want that bad air coming here. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, had we had time, we could have built a shared process for moving that along. Now, the challenge is that when things like this happen, the way that our government works in the city, you're given, everything comes at the 11th hour. And at the 11th hour, you've got to try to, you know, fight. And you can't really fight at the 11th hour. So one of the things I'm saying now is that we have to do a better job not just reacting, but planning for our fights, building mm -hmm. our alliances, helping to connect the dots so people can see our intersecting fate so that when um, things are happening, we're prepared to respond to Fiat Chrysler or to U.S. Ecology or anybody else who is threatening to poison our community. Agreed. And I'm glad you mentioned allies. You know, that's one of the reasons I spent so much time working with uh, some of the UP members and the Northern Michigan folks because for the most part, our issues are not super aligned. So I can be helpful to them on things that matter a great deal to them, hoping that they will be similarly helpful on issues that matter more down here. And it's developing those relationships for when you need them. Are we talking about the Mackinac Strait Authority? Because I do have questions about that. Um, but I mean, we'll wait on that. Another yeah. straight off the pet press. <laughs> Fresh off the press, working the polls is hard. <laughs> Do it anyway. Uh, Donna Marie Brown and Katie Locker in partnership with Bridge Detroit and the Free Press is reporting. And so uh, Donna Marie Brown, the president and CEO of uh, the Michigan Nonprofit Association and Katie Locker, former director of the Knight Foundation, now a consultant here in the city, wrote a really compelling article about what it looks like to work uh, polls on election day here in the city of Detroit. And what they describe is a process that isn't really linear, but dynamic um, in a sort of uh, a, a little bit of a scary way um, that a process demands uh, persistence. If you want to be a poll worker in the city of Detroit, you have to actually be persistent. You have to encourage uh, the clerk's office to follow up. You have to make sure that you have your training 
uh, materials in your training location. And, you know, they, they sort of give us, you know, a, a, a take by take uh, synopsis of what all of that looked like. And um, in an effort to encourage people to volunteer, I'm not necessarily sure after reading the article that I'm sold on volunteering. <laughs> I, I was more a little like, I don't know if I want to do this now. Um, I think I still will. I think I will volunteer. Uh, for the polls um, here uh, in the city of Detroit. But one of the things that, uh, you know, our, our listeners need to be aware of is the, the shortage in volunteers, number one, and the clerk's office inability to adequately train uh, poll workers and poll, chair, poll location chairmen who sort of lead, take the lead role um, at, at the, uh, the polling locations. And so, it is a very long day. They describe 14 to 16 hour days with essentially no breaks. And I do believe that this November, we're going to have a turnout that we haven't seen um, in recent elections. And so I am a little worried, um, even if uh, the clerk's office gets um, the, you know, the amount of volunteers that they're hoping for, will the training be adequate? Will all of the questions be answered? How will we troubleshoot problems on election day? And how can we not uh, for the umpteenth time, not be an embarrassment in the city of Detroit when it comes to counting our votes, when it comes to making sure that absentee ballots are, are good and valid. I, it is what happens in Detroit elections. It really, it just irritates my soul. We have a clerk that just cannot seem to get it right. And so I am excited about uh, the election process coming up when Janice Winfrey will be up for re-election. And I hope that our democracy will prove itself once again with, you know, an, an adequate challenger because challenge is always good, right? Um, especially for um, a position uh, like, like our, like the clerk's office here in the city. So uh, it was, a, it was a compelling article. I'm not necessarily sure if it got, it would get the job done in making people want to volunteer but uh, it really does give a snapshot into uh, the life of the poll worker. And so oftentimes we go in and we may get frustrated with the poll worker, but we have to also exercise some judgment and patience as lay people and voters with the poll workers because these folks probably haven't adequately been trained to sort of troubleshoot some of the problems and snafus that take place on election day in Detroit, sad to say. So 2016, I'm at East English Village Prep Academy, standing in line with my daughters. The poll worker comes up to us. Um, we're standing in line. We've gotten our ballots. And she's, oh, you don't have to stand in this line. You can just go sit in the cafeteria because the machine is broken. And so just sit in the cafeteria, sit anywhere you like, and just bring it back when you're done. And I'm like, are you sure this is legal to <laughs> disconnect me from this process? So, you know, of course, I didn't leave. And when I got to the end of the line, I put my um, ballot in a cardboard box. What? I put my ballot in a cardboard box like everybody else standing in this long line because the machine was broken. Now, there's, listen, when I went to vote absentee last time, I drove up to the boulevard, put it in the slot, 
and left. And I felt confident that my vote was counted. And when I got home, I the next day I looked online to see that it was uh, received and processed. When I put my ballot in that box, I had no confidence about what would happen. So I think that um, when we talk about democracy, there's nothing like being in line in 2016 during a very, very influential presidential election, not knowing whether your ballot is one of those ballots that just didn't count that day because the numbers were off. So um, I, I think it's partly the poll workers, but I think it is largely the clerk. And I, I agree with you. I may, I'm going to even um, decide whether or not I'm willing to volunteer. Let's do it um, together. Well, you know, I might do that. <laughs> we can have a live show. No, I'm just joking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, it could be like, um, we can be immersed and then come back and talk about our experiences. That's a great idea. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about it, but I think that we have to acknowledge the fact that really when you're talking about is election systems, and every type of system from quality control to, you know, standing in line. And what you hear from the clerk is, oh, yeah, we had some broken machines, but that's only 5%. And so it doesn't matter. It matters to when me. You hear from the clerk. I am one of those 5%. And so when I hear her minimizing the problem, it really makes me um, feel devalued as a voter. And so we keep talking about voting matters and putting the burden of voting on uh, people, but there's two things in Detroit that have happened in recent memory that have really contradicted the idea that voting matter. One of them is Janice Winfrey, and the other one is emergency management. Or any, you know, I think before her curry, there were some questions about her. In my voting lifetime in Detroit, we have not had, as I can recall, a clerk that was just really, really, really reliable and good, in my opinion. And maybe that's unfair. But I think that um, election security is not just about voter fraud. It is about protecting people's right to vote by ensuring that every single vote counts and nobody's vote is expendable. Um, how many votes were turned away this time? I think um, that's the other thing. We need to change the law, Senator Holier. We need a change in the law so that um, even if, if I have my ballot sent out by election day, I'm saying this and I don't want to say it too loudly because my mother is staying with me. But my mother sent, mailed her ballot, and I tracked her ballot, and it did not get counted. Mm -hmm. I haven't told her that because, you know, I'm trying to protect Because you mailed her. it. But she mailed it, and um, it breaks my heart to know that she called me up, and we went through every single person on the ballot, mm -hmm. filled it out, mailed it, and it never arrived and didn't count. Mm. Yeah, it's unacceptable. And I'll, I'll be very honest, like as we talk about and talk through this issue, Republicans don't want those things to count. And so, you know, in August at the primary, I handed, you know, handed my absentee ballot uh, to the clerk, literally to the clerk on uh, the day before election day, that Monday, she was standing outside on the boulevard collecting, you know, ballots. It's a huge problem. It's unacceptable. You know, and the Republicans don't want to fix the things that are necessary. And as much as I'd like to blame it on the clerk, and certainly there are some issues, there are also some things that at, at, the, at the state level we could fix to make this work better. Uh, I introduced legislation to do that to allow the ballots, the AV ballots to be prepared early because, you know, you talk about a 14, 16 hour day, uh, you know, when you're in your 20s standing on your feet and, and doing all those kind of things for 14 hours is hard. When you're in your 60s and 70s and 80s, which many of the poll workers 
uh, have historically been, that's a real long day. And you talk about, you know, using the technology, dealing with all those kind of things. There are a lot of things that we could allow um, the local clerks and election officials to do to start getting those things prepared so that we actually know. Because one of the big challenges that we're going to be dealing with is, you know, who won in Michigan. And if the number of people vote absentee that voted last time, that number is not going to be out at 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. or 6 a.m. or maybe 8 a.m. or 2 p.m. or 6 p.m. or 8 p.m. And, you know, in 2016, one of my former, uh, you know, I, I'm in the Army Reserve, my, one of my former techs and one of the uh, instructors I had at, at, at one of my professional schools is a Kentucky, is a Kentuckian, a hick, self-described hick <laughs> from Kentucky, good friend, but he was calling me complaining about how we couldn't count ballots in Detroit on, you know, election morning, right? Wait, up waiting like me at three or four in the morning, waiting for Michigan to be called and them saying on national TV, well, Detroit ballots aren't in. And we know that that is most likely going to be the case this next time. And there are a number of bills in the legislature that Republicans have chosen not to move because they are worried that it may advantage Democrats and when they're saying Democrats, they mean Black people, people that look like us from the city of Detroit, spaces where counting all of these AV ballots will be difficult. What about your friends in the UP? Are they joining hands with you? I mean, they're, they are open on this. this. That is a leadership discussion, and the Senate Majority Leader has been holding those kind of things up. There are a number of the individual members of the Senate who are proposing those things, even you know, as much as I disagree with some, you know, her not going far enough, Ruth Johnson, the former Secretary of State, has, you know, legislation that would make it a little bit easier, but still not going anywhere near as far as we need to go. But it's 100% them from a leadership standpoint. So if the bills went up on the board, they would pass. They're just not going up on the board because leadership has decided that that's not time or what they want to do yet. And that's the frustrating part. There are lots of things where we could get the votes to say yes from a number of these members, but they aren't coming up. Because particularly in the UP and some of these more rural communities, absentee ballots play a huge role in people being able to vote just because of how far you know it is to get to these places and, and all that space. I mean, Republicans have been voting absentee for years. Mm -hmm. Only yeah, now that the president you know, is I mean, concerned. Well, I mean, um, the same thing, you know, as people say that if um, black people started exercising open carry the way that uh, white people have been doing for years, it would not um, fly. So I think that we see the hypocrisy is nothing new. Um, I do want to ask you, though, as you talk about it, do you believe that um, that that it, it's even possible to reach across the aisle and um, get, get agreement on things given the polarization between the parties and mm. actually the hard line that the Republican Party takes. Like I hear people, especially Democrats, bragging about being bipartisan and being able to reach across the aisle. And I have no idea what that means in 2020. So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. yeah so I, I'm on the Appropriations Committee. I've had a lot of success working across the aisle to get programs funded that would otherwise not have been funded. Programs like Flip the Script, getting you know funding for Focus Hope, doing uh, some changes in, in a number of programs that affect local communities. Does that always result in legislative change? Certainly not as much as I'd like to, uh, but it certainly allowed me to you know amend some things and make things that may have been worse less worse. It doesn't make them ideal in, in all these avenues, but I've been able to make some change. It, 
you know, I'm certainly not going to say it's enough change. I'm certainly not going to say that I feel great about how much it's been, just that I feel like it is better than it would have otherwise been. You know, when you talk about the impact of those programs, when you talk about uh, changing how some of these things work, you know, I know we're going to talk about aggregate stuff a little bit later, but, you know, even that legislation has changed and is moving into a direction where I've got Republicans on board to commit to, you know, making sure that there are protections for the environment and water in that space. And have honestly been working with, you know, the environmental groups and with uh, Eagle to give us a standard because I've got, you know, them on board for a standard. It's just what does that standard look like? So a lot of it is, is marginal. And I think when you're talking about uh, from an activist standpoint, is it enough? The answer is always no. It is a resounding no. It is a not even close to too far enough. But it's progress and we're still working on it. All right. So Orlando and I have a list of questions we want to ask you. And there's I'm excited. one that comes up that I'm sorry, Orlando, I didn't even think about that. There's going to be House testimony tomorrow about um, House Bill 582021, which is the Michigan Community Investment Pilot Program and Michigan Community Investment Tax Credit, which would allow corporations and individuals to invest in nonprofit community development organizations yeah. and the tax credit for the value of that investment. Do you support that? And if so, Will you use your influence to try to get this passed in the Senate at the Senate level? Absolutely. And I was, you know, having conversations with Maggie DeSantis about this. God, what seems like a year ago, had to been a year ago because we've been COVID for six months. So yeah, it was last summer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I'm on the board of a CDC, have been very involved in, in that kind of work. You know, right? I have a, yep. You know, I'm a, I have a master's in urban planning with folks on economic development. I'm all about these kinds of things. And I think uh, I sit on one of the appropriation subcommittees that deals with uh, this kind of thing, have been very involved and have been working on uh, this kind of work. And yeah, it's an easy yes for me. Okay, that's good to hear. All right. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think this is, this is the perfect segue to talk about um, your legislative policy agenda for uh, your district. And before we get off into our litany of questions, we want to first give you the opportunity to talk about some of the things uh, that you are working on policy-wise mm -hmm. that you uh, want to get passed before lame duck. Yeah, so the thing that I, I've been working the hardest on and I'm most interested is I'm trying to create this Black Community Response Fund. I don't have a good name for it, so if you've got a good name, you know, I'm open. Uh, but so I was trying to use some of the uh, COVID response dollars to fund and seed into the Black community with the idea that we have been disproportionately hit hard from COVID and exact, you know, it just has exacerbated the kind of impacts and the, the things that we see as we start talking about racial, you know, racial um, systemic racism, as we talk about um, environmental justice, we talk about all these issues that impact Black and Brown people way more, but we never have any dollars associated with that. So it's trying to find funding that we could leverage uh, the philanthropic and the nonprofit and the business community in much the same way that you saw with the grand bargain. So the idea that they were willing to bail out art, but they're not willing to invest in us. And so trying to have been really working hard to do those. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of that money has already been spent. So now I've been looking at other ways to, to find dollars and spend them together to, to build these, these programs out and to to fund these programs and fund individuals and our community in that way. So working on that, I've been working on some uh, internet gaming stuff. Uh, as you as you all probably know, uh, the Detroit casinos are a significant portion of revenue for the city of Detroit. 
And so trying to get uh, them be able to do online gaming quicker so that the city of Detroit can continue to provide the services that it needs to do. Uh, I've been working on a, a lead task force for the better part of the last year. I've been working on some um, criminal justice reform stuff. So uh, one of the things that we talk about in uh, kind of this policing space and these discussions has been what your interactions with the police look like, right? So uh, I think a lot of work has been done around expungements and they're like, all right, well, you can have one felony or two misdemeanors or a felony and a misdemeanor, all kind of things. But what people don't recognize is you may have had one bad day or even one bad moment and get two felonies and a misdemeanor or three misdemeanors, you know, and some of those are this resisting and obstructing idea, right? So let's say the police are, are, are roughing you up in Orlando because you're a pretty, you know, tough guy and, and you fight a little bit back and, you know, you, you push him back. Instead of you just getting whatever you were being arrested for, you also get this resisting and obstructing charge. So that may be a second felony. Uh, and so now you can no longer get an expungement. It's, so trying to, to eliminate that so that that is just a misdemeanor so that all those go away. And so we've, I've gotten a lot of support from uh, some of the police units and the prosecutor um, has kind of endorsed, you know, that I've been working on this uh, jury task force, which, which I'm really, uh, Kim Worthy, the Wayne County prosecutor. She piles on those, um, she, well, she, sometimes she can pile on charges too. I mean, all prosecutors do that, right? Because they feel like if, I, if you don't get convicted of this, you'll be convicted of that. So I'll charge you with 10 things with the hope that one of them will stick and if all of them stick now you are for the exact like you said for the same crime you are you have 10 felonies or yeah and and so i've been working with her for um probably six you know the majority of the year about this issue and so she's come around and, and has really come around on a number of things so we've been talking about you know how juries should be constituted and so she's sitting on this jury task force that that we've kind of convened as we're working on figuring out what jury should look like. Cause I, I don't know if you've ever been Orlando, but I've never been on a jury. I've never been in the jury pool. And I think I would be a good juror. I think I would be fair and reasonable and take this thing serious. And it's troubling to me when I've never been on and I see you shaking your head like you've never been on. And when a black man is often in the criminal justice system and being adjudicated, when we talk about having someone that looks like me that has a shared experience, I think that's a really relevant thing that isn't coming up and it's problematic noting that the likelihood that a black man like me is going to be found guilty makes a big difference about how his jury is pulled, right? So if there is another black man on that jury, my, my conviction rate goes down 70%. There's a black woman on that jury goes down 45%. And so that says that that shared experience that having somebody that looks like you makes a difference in a conviction rate. And when you pile on and say, well, you know, so many black men have been convicted. Well, then they can't serve on juries. And so talking to the prosecutor, that's another thing. She was like, yeah, maybe we should be reevaluating that. that. That is absolutely something that we should be changing and looking at and making sure that people who come back from prison and, and are, you know, formerly incarcerated get the opportunity to share in these spaces. So I think a lot of the work I do from a legislative standpoint has been kind of twofold of like, what are the things that I really want to change? And then what are the things that I can just make better? So there are a lot of pieces of legislation that I may come to or that someone brings to me because I'm like, yeah, I don't love that, but is that moving? That's going to go somewhere? Then let me try and make that better than what it was when you when I found it. Yeah, I guess that's my question. Really, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Donna. I, I just hear a lot of really um, intentional, thoughtful analysis going behind what you're doing and a clear vision for the change you want to see. Um, sometimes, though, it feels, and this 
is that when we want to see these changes, we can't go it alone. Mm-hmm. Do you have this? You have this kind of maverick personality, it seems. <laughs> you are going to just try to make it work, and I'll be friends with this person. I'll be friends with that person. And there's two, um, you know, and that's a strength. But sometimes it could be, you know, and you are a, a Libra, and I get that Libras can see both sides and weigh them out, and you know, that's the reason I'm like, oh, I'm a Virgo. I'm not a Libra because Libras are so balanced. <laughs> Well, but what about their point of view? My wife doesn't like it either. Yeah, well, you know, um, it it, it can be a strength, but our strengths are also our weaknesses. And so Mm -hmm. when you understand the weaknesses of your strengths, then that allows you to sort of, um, to to at least try to accommodate that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you go out there alone, there are people who've been out there before you, who know what's there, can warn Mm -hmm. you. Do you listen? I like to think I do, but I think that's a hard question to answer, right? Like, I mean, you married everybody, you know, every husband thinks he's listening. He don't always hear what he was being told. So I, I recognize that that's my third marriage. What would you say? (laughs) Um, You know, it's not really funny, but it's the truth. Go on. I'm sorry. I I mean, but I think that that's saying that, you know, that people are, 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 are open. So I like to think that I'm open. That's one of the reasons that I reached out to Orlando. That's one of the reasons that, you know, I, I like to think that I'm an open book. I don't know if that's always the case, but I'm a really iterative person. So I try things and I'm like, does that work? Does that not work? I don't know. I think it could be better. I, I always want to make things better. I'm always open to listening. And, and I think that there are often, I guess the best way to describe this is I came to the point that I should not try and convince anyone of something that I could not be convinced, right? So if you believe that, Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior, you can, and you cannot be convinced of anything else, there is no reason that you should be believing that you can convince me that, you know, the Dalit, or that, um, what's it good, that Muhammad was the, the one true prophet, right? Like, if, if you believe fundamentally, and there is no, there is no space to be converted, I don't know how you believe that you could convert someone else. And so I try and steer away from the things where I could not be converted, and try and focus on the things that we can and, and say, there are so many problems in the world. There's so many issues that we can't change anybody's mind on. What is up there? What is for grabs? And then the second piece in that is, if this thing is going to move, right? So if there is going to be a change, if there's going to be policy change, I would rather be a part of making that thing better. Even if it's not a good thing, I would rather be a part of making it better than just letting it go and being able to stand up and say, well, I was fighting that thing because I come from a community that can't accept what I fought for. it. They need things that we win. They need things to be better because what exists today is unacceptable. Right. But I just want to just follow up that. I know you have something else. I just want to follow up with this line of of conversation Mm -hmm. and say that, um, you know, sometimes as black people who are educated, smart, and aware, there's people who will try to pull on that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've, it's in my experience, right? Well, Donnie, you know, the rest of those people don't get it. You, you, you get it, but the rest of your people don't get it. And they try to pull me into whatever kind of, um, you know, thinking they, they want to because they have an objective. And, you know, when I was younger, I sometimes could be flattered, although usually not, but, you know, sometimes you can get pulled. And mm-hmm. there is strength sometimes in unity. And saying no together, even if you think 
eh, maybe we should say yes. Do you ever have a vote? I'm going to throw one out at you that, you know, your first big controversial vote. Have you ever regretted that? No. Okay. And, so and I think here about and, 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 line five and you're here about the environmental risks that are not going to be addressed. You still feel good about that. I do. I think it's the fastest and best way to get the uh, pipeline out of the water. And so I think as you've seen all of the, all of the legal cases that have been fought and there has been no progress in getting it shut down from a legal standpoint, the fastest and most effective way to get a pipeline out of the Strait of Mackinac is to get it in the tunnel. And I think one of the, one of, the Donald, let, me, let, let me just add one piece. As you talk about being uh, in line, even though I was the only Democrat in the Senate, a, a majority of Detroiters and a significant majority of Detroiters voted yes for line five. Uh, it's just the majority of them are in the House. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about jobs, when we talk about safety, when we talk about what that looks like, I think there are two narratives about line five. Would I have voted to put a pipeline or a tunnel there if it didn't exist? No. But do, am, I, you know, am I excited about getting that out of the water? Yes. And so here we are two years later and no closer to shutting it down, but they are you know, just a couple of years away from having a tunnel that is the largest infrastructure project in the state of Michigan, north of uh, Saginaw, uh, aside from the Mackinac Bridge. That's gonna be a $500 million private investment. It's gonna be a significant number of good paid union, Michigan jobs. And, but fundamentally, it's gonna be safer. It's gonna put a tunnel 100 feet below the, the bed. And every time that somebody says and that they show that the uh, pipelines are not a good look, I, I couldn't agree with you more. They shouldn't be there. And the fastest, quickest way to get them out is to put them in a tunnel. You know, if I had had other options, maybe I could have made different decisions. But with the options that, that were before me, I had an opportunity to be a part of something to fix it and to make sure that they had union labor and to do some of these other kind of things because I was at the table. And some of those changes happened in the House, but my willingness to support it in the Senate gave some other members the flexibility to do so in the House and the ability to get the changes that I think made it better policy and to make it move forward. And similarly, to be able to develop the kind of relationships with uh, Enbridge that I think have paid dividends. So I got, you know, since then, they had had almost no philanthropic engagement in the state of Michigan. Uh, they gave $50,000 a thaw, and not to say that that's, you know, a gajillion dollars, but those are the kind of things that by engaging folks and being involved at the table, we can move the needle on. And is it enough? No. Is it close to enough? No. But is it better than it was before? Yes. And that's what I'm looking for. Better. What's the status of that project? So they're, they're moving uh, forward, I think still a little bit ahead of schedule. Uh, the attorney general dropped, I, I, she had a number of lawsuits that she filed. She's dropped at least two of them after she um, lost, I think at one of her appeals and decided not to do the second level of appeal. The uh, permitting process is going on right now. I think they, they're either still taking citizen um, comment or maybe that just ended. I think that just, ended, the comment period just ended a, a couple of weeks ago. So. Um, the vertical boring stuff is, is still happening. They've got the uh, 
drill mechanism started built and they've been doing engineering and are, are moving through their Eagle permitting process. So everything is still going along on the schedule um, that they had provided ahead of time. Donnie, you have a follow-up before I uh, switch to car insurance? All right, car <laughs> insurance. Let's talk about I love it. it. I'm excited. I'm so excited. I can't, like, ain't nobody more excited about auto insurance than me. I was paying almost $12,000 a year before the reforms. I'm paying $3,000. So the question was, I, I'll read you the question verbatim. Is car insurance lawyer today, uh, there's a post uh, that said the bill, the bill was lowered significantly, but... Uh, Donna, you were only able to calculate what eleven dollars a month yeah. in savings on your bill. Um, yes. Change, really companies. But, but but you know, I mean, I think that that I'm with the company that gave me the lowest bill, and right. I guess my question yeah. is, um, oh, well, you must have had low insurance. I mean, shoot. well, no, I Who didn't you have, have low insurance. I didn't have low insurance. This is what I'm saying. But, you know, you shop around, you get to the lowest, and then they say, okay, you can save $11. And so... Who do you have? I, that's crazy. I, I mean, that... I have I, progressive. I, have, I just trust your progressive. I literally saved $8,000. I don't know how it's possible. No, I, you know, I think that that's the thing is that they do it, they don't bake their insurance, they base their insurance not on zip code but on population group or on block group and so maybe you live on a good block and i live on the worst block and they use different kinds of metrics to make decisions so i've heard of other people having issues with that so maybe the bill was designed to help people who live certain places and not others is there a way to track how detroiters are doing as a result of this bill yeah. So that we can look outside of your personal experience and my personal experience, we're two people, but has insurance become affordable for Detroiters? Because I'm not convinced that it is. I know that Mike Duggan did some workshops on insurance in the D and I have to go back and watch that workshop because maybe I'm just not asking the right questions, but it feels to me like we gave the industry a whole lot without uh, demanding a guarantee of savings and without you know, without really saying, okay, you can, we sort of had a bait and switch. Well, it's not going to be a um, zip code, but it's going to be a block group, which allows for more targeted um, um, rate issues. Yeah, so, so, I, I mean, I, I think you're, you're raising some legitimate points. Let me start with kind of outlining what, what the changes were for our listeners who may not be as familiar as the, the two of you are. So, the big thing is we went to a, a position where you could choose choice on your personal injury protection. Uh, so before Michigan was the only state in the country that required unlimited personal injury protection. Uh, the next highest mandate was New Jersey at $25,000. The lowest you can opt into in the state of Michigan now is $250,000. Uh, unless you have uh, Medicaid, take care, aid the elderly care. No, Medicare, Medicare. If you have Medicare, Medicare is for the elderly, right? Yeah, Medicare. So if you have Medicare, you can opt completely out, or if you have a qualified health plan, you can opt, you can select the $250,000 option and opt completely out of personal injury protection. And so they're mandated savings at the given opt-out level. So you are mandated, a, a, on average, a statewide average savings of about 50%. If you go out, you know, if you go to that 500,000 mark, 
and uh, your PIP should be zeroed out if you are able to opt out completely. So I completely opted out of the personal injury protection piece, but everyone on average should have got a 10% savings and even just the downward adjustment of the Michigan catastrophic claims fee would give most people significant uh, savings, a couple hundred dollars um, at an annualized uh, basis. But we also made a number of significant reforms, one of which I, you know, was an amendment that I added was getting rid of uh, FICO credit scoring. So Michigan is now the most restrictive state as it relates to what non-driving factors can be included in your rate setting. So it removed FICO credit, stating, credit rating, it removed marital status, educational attainment, uh, white collar versus blue collar work, and gender. And so none of all of those things used to be included in your rate setting, setting uh, policy that are no, now no longer included. And so Michigan has the most restrictive uh, you know, categories as it relates to uh, non-driving factors. So we got a lot of change. Is it enough change, Donna? No. Is it as fair as we'd like to be? No. But it was the first time we saw any change in my lifetime. I'm 35. I'll be 35 uh, in a couple of weeks since no fall had passed. So it, it is 100% a forward progress. It is just not far enough along. Uh, I'll go back and, and see if I can get some citywide data. It, it's hard to say because the change were just effective July 1. And so, you know, I don't know if they have any data Could yet. we have demanded that though, given the disproportionality of Detroit insurance bills, there are Detroiters who feel as though people's suburban rates will be cut at the expense of Detroiters. And so I don't think that there is an absolute, a lot of, there is a lot of um, trust. I think that we have allowed for certain things to be removed. I know that the FICO credit score can't be used, but I believe that there are some other um, criteria that resemble credit that can be used. I know zip code can't be used, but there are other criteria that resemble zip code so that insurance companies are still allowed to target how they charge people for their insurance. And unless we are tracking that and saying, is there injustice here? Because this is, again, the kind of oh, thing, I'm sorry. This, is I'm my, sorry. this is my criticism. Donna, I, yeah. There okay. is that. So the, uh, the department, it does now have more oversight over that. So Michigan used to be a file and use state. So you could file your um, rates and they just go into effect. Now it's a, it has to be approved by the department. So yes, the department is looking at that. I thought you were asking if the data was available yet. No. So the, the department does have more oversight roles and more authority than they had previously. I just don't believe the data is there yet. But what I'm saying is that we need to report data by race. We need to um, report data by municipality because racism has a way of being rebranded, okay? We say this is no longer allowed, redlining is no longer allowed, but we have rebranded it to something else. Light removal, come on, all and of the, the consequence is the same. Unless you have specific actions, first of all, I know there was a lawsuit that um, the NAACP and Butch Hollowell fought um, years ago talking about racial discrimination and um, and there's this big pretense that it does not exist in auto insurance when in fact there's it evidence does. that it exists. So then no we question. come up with colorblind solutions with the hope that a rising boat lifts, a rising tide lifts all boats, and that doesn't happen. Sometimes Agreed. some boats are lifted at the expense of others. 
So there mm -hmm. are those of us, and I have to be really honest with you, who feel as though the leverage that you had was taken away the minute that you agreed to this, that there was leverage in there. The insurance industry, first of all, funded a lot of campaigns. I don't know if it went into your campaign, but the insurance industry was the industry that supported these bills because the insurance industry wanted to in, in, um, eliminate certain restrictions in Michigan that made in Michigan the worst in the nation from their perspective. Um, what was it, unlimited coverage for? Um, yeah, so you're talking about the unlimited PIP. So, unlimited yeah. PIP. So hold on. So they wanted that. There's no longer unlimited PIP in Michigan, and they got what they wanted. And in exchange, they gave us something that may work for some people and not for others, but as long as it works and it averages out to reduce rates in people, it's okay. You don't have to say as long as in each municipality you have a rate reduction, it's okay. But as long as Allstate, on average, their customers have reduced rates, they're doing well. And the way to do that is to either pass along the exact same savings to everybody or to have it be, you know, again, um, one group at the expense of the other. So we need to be able to track that. And I hope that um, people at the state level are really serious about saying, let's demand that of our departments, that they are disclosing this information and that we are looking at tracking that information and disaggregating it by race and locality. So I, I don't think that they'll be able to do it by race. They're not allowed to ask any of those questions and it's been completely stricken. So I, I don't think they'll have that data, but I think you're right. You know, I mean, it's certainly something that we should be talking about and that we will continue to be working on uh, going forward. Even the fact that they're not allowed to, again, colorblindness serves racism. It does not serve black people. When, when it, it's almost like, you know, you cannot ask my race when I apply for this apartment. So you don't have to be, you don't have to track your discrimination. The reason that employers have to track race of their employees is so that they can, you know, report to the, um, the, the they can report their labor behavior. So if I'm firing people, if I am, you know, discriminating against people on any in, in employment, then you can know because I have to track it by race. I have to track by race what's happening in schools. Whenever you have to do that, there's some at least illusion of accountability. Now that we can't track insurance by race, there's no illusion of equity. And that's again my concern well, I, that we didn't go far yeah. enough and demand enough. And I don't know if we're going to be able to get back to that. Do you think that now that this legislation is written, there's going to be an impetus to rewrite it? I think, I think we're going to do lots of fixes. I think it was important to get the first change. And I think that's the way the legislative process works. So when you look at the uh, 1967 Civil Rights Act, a lot of people, that's a Civil Rights Act that people know, but it was the third iteration the first, you know, being the 1964 Civil Rights Act that didn't make lynching a, a crime. It basically did absolutely nothing and was decried by the NAACP and every, you know, every black organization. But what it did was it said that change could happen, right? That was the bill that Strom Thurmond set the record for filibustering, not the 67 one, not the one that was consequential. It was that first one. And so I think when we talk about this, it was the first bite at the apple and the first change that we've seen in 35 years. Is it enough? No. Is it far enough? No. Should we still be working on more? Yes. Am I still working on more? Yes. Should yeah. you still be asking for more, demanding more? Absolutely. Let We're me just, just not there. 
let me just express my cynicism about all of that. We have um, just as little home ownership by black people now as we did in 1967. So we have fair housing and we still, it's still not fair. Um, 1967, heck, I'm, um, I was born in 1963. What is that, 54 years ago? Is that the last time we passed civil rights legislation? And please don't tell me the lynching law is civil rights legislation. I guess that's my point. My point is that sometimes we do things, we leave them alone and we say, well, there's progress. But unless you are continually leveraging power and leveraging influence, because the reality is that there was a, um, people came together with the desire to make change. And now that this change has been made, I don't know if the same coalition for change will exist the next time we get a bite at that apple. And so I hope I'm wrong. Um, when, when I predict bad things, I hope to be wrong because I try to be an optimist and I really like to see good things happen. And I would love to talk to you next year and have you say, see, I told you so. That's what I'm really hoping for. So if you can make that happen, let's do it. But I think that's where I get with the maverick piece, that there were a lot of people who went to the state and did not listen to those people who cautioned, wait a minute, slow down. And I'm not just talking about you. I believe that you know, even the governor came out and said, look, I negotiated this great deal. And a lot of people are really feeling the pain because Detroit is still driving dirty. Detroiters are still getting excessive tickets because we don't have car insurance. And, um, and, and so I think that the, um, the, the problem is not fixed. And we had the big celebration for a problem that still exists in Detroit in a big way. And I want us to be conscious of that big problem in our community and serious about what it takes to fix it. And I'm not sure that I think we're there yet. I mean, I don't disagree with you. I think the challenge though is you show me a problem that's been fixed. I don't think there is one. We got a lot of things that we're working on and we have gotten closer. I think we made a huge difference in that. And when you talk about you know what Detroiters have been able to save and folks who have been able to do it, for the most part, I have gotten very positive responses on, on those kind of things. And, you know, when I was going through this process myself, I very publicly on my social media was like, hey, this is what I pay. I posted my auto insurance bill and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And a number of auto insurance um, agents were like, oh, you know, this auto insurance stuff is the worst. Can't believe that you're supporting it. I was like, well, why don't you give me a quote? And I ended up going with one of those people who was stridently opposed to the reform and him just quoting me because he hadn't done any business in Detroit was like, oh, this makes a huge difference. This is a fundamental change. Okay. And so I get not far enough. So totally. short, short, of, short of tracking, would you be willing to co-host a, a town hall with us? Of and course, I would love to. Out to that town I hall and talk about what happened with insurance yeah. and let's have a conversation. Let people bring their bills to the table. So would love to, and I'll bring whatever expert you want. Or yes, I would love to. Oh, I would okay. absolutely well, love to. I, I did one in my on district. Let's put that on the calendar. <laughs> there's, always, there's always going to be an ask. I love it, Donna Gibbons. Um, I like it. We're 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 a little over time, so I want to. I have, I have two questions for you. Uh, just one on the public accountability front uh, for your for your constituency and our listeners to um, number one, hear a parting message from you. Um, what, what do you want your constituents and listeners to know about your, your record um, in, in the state Senate and, and 
uh, what you plan on doing in the future. And lastly, making sure that people have your contact information so that they can get um, in contact with you. They can email you. They can call your office to express support or dissent around whatever it is that you're working on um, in, the Lansing, in Lansing. So. Yeah, so uh, the best way to reach us, particularly with pandemic right now, is uh, to email us. And so you can find our website or you can email me at S-E-N-A-H-O-L-L-I-E-R dot Senate dot M-I dot gov. If you Google uh, Senator Adam Olie um, or go to Senator Adam Olie at I think Senate dot Michigan dot gov, it'll come up. But do that. That's the easiest way to, to get in touch with us. Uh, the thing that I, I certainly want to leave with is my firm belief, if, if uh, you've been able to listen, is that we can do better and that we should be trying to do better in everything that we do. And every day we get up and try and get a little bit closer, move the ball a little bit further. And so that is how I try and uh, address policy and proposals and do all those kind of things. As a member of the Appropriations Committee, I have really focused in on getting funding back to the city of Detroit, to the programs that we do, um, to nonprofits, to uh, economic development tools, to, to really hone in on doing work in the city of Detroit. Uh, kind of lastly, um, I'm also gonna be uh, running the ballot initiative for proposal in. I know we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but I'm really excited about other tools and opportunities to get funding into neighborhoods that have not had it uh, in the past to do some of the demolition and to board up and save some of the homes that I think should and could be saved. Uh, so, you know, if you want, I'd love to come back and talk a little bit more about Proposal N as we get closer. But uh, I think it's really important that we find ways to invest in the neighborhoods that haven't gotten funding in the past and to do so now. And so, again, I'm Senator Adam Olie. Uh, you can give my office a call at 517-373-7400. Okay. All right. If you have topics that you want to discuss on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit, or email us at Authentically Detroit at gmail.com. Our thanks to uh, State Senator Adam Ollier. It is time for shout outs. Donna, do you have any shout out this week? Yeah, I, I, I'm shouting out everybody who's suing. You know, I'm tired <laughs> of seeing the injustice. Brianna Taylor's boyfriend is now suing the police department for all of the injustices they have caused him. And um, he makes so many good points that it took them three days to arrest him and in three months, they haven't figured out what to do with um, Brianna Taylor's actual killer. So, um, and it's actually, they came out and said that he did not deliver the shot. He's not, the, his bullet didn't shoot. There were so many bullets flying. He's saying, that, that's not my gun. So I'm, I'm happy about that because this is the kind of thing that belongs in the court of law. And if you can't bring it from a prosecutorial um, standpoint, bring a civil case. And I also am really excited that Detroit Will Breathe is actually suing the city of Detroit because there are so many conflicting stories about what is happening. Bring the evidence. Don't just keep on, you know, spinning it in the media. I want to see the evidence. I want the um, people in an impartial way, and I hope we get impartial juries to be able to hear and report on this so that the community understands. Right now, there is this national demonizing of people who are activists and fighting for justice, even as you read in the paper that Breonna Taylor's ex-boyfriend was offered a deal as long as he mm. uh, implicated her in a crime after her death. Who would do that other than somebody trying to preserve the illusion of justice inside of a department which is clearly delivering injustice? So um, that's my, um, I think this is the next battlefield. We, let's take it to the courts. We've been in the streets, let's go to court. Um, I also want to, um, 
shout out Mark Covington. Um, Mark Covington does so much great work. I admire him. He is a community leader. Who Georgia puts, Street Collective, what up though? Georgia Street Collective. I mean, he just came back to Detroit and said, I'm going to do this and did it and keeps on doing mom. it. Shout out to and his mom. Out. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and buys more and more and more lots and comes up with more ideas. I love Detroit entrepreneurs like that who just come up with ways to improve the community and don't ask permission before they make change. Um, and of course, I want to shout out my friend, Regina Strong. It was great reading about her influence um, during the process of trying to figure out how to respond to COVID-19. Um, she is a very sweet person, but apparently she used her um, very kind demeanor to make change on behalf of citizens of Detroit and actually help the governor to listen. So those are my shout outs. Uh, shout out to uh, Olivia Lewis, who wrote the story uh, on our staff at uh, Bridge Detroit. Uh, very thorough, just just great storytelling on her part. Shout out to Donna and her new husband, Kevin. Hey, she's married now. Where's Shug Avery from the color purple? I was married now. Uh, we certainly want to um, acknowledge, uh, we have to acknowledge on this show, uh, the passing of a titan uh, here in America. Black America, especially uh, Chapman Bozeman, who played so many of our icons, so many of our legends, and gave um, kids a new vision and personification of what a superhero looks like. I certainly didn't have it growing up, uh, and Chad, Chad was the, the man to do that. So uh, we acknowledge his legacy, um, we acknowledge his body of work. And uh, I think now we have to begin to have a conversation about early onset colon cancer for black men. You know, we are supposed to be tested like at what, 45, training toward 50? He was 40 when he got it? So Adam, you're getting up there. You might want to ask your doctor. <laughs> hey, about that's one space I am all about. You know? yeah. And we talk about health, it's really important. But if I could do one shout out is to uh, former representative almost Stallworth, you know, uh, she passed. And I think a lot of people don't recognize how important some of our giants have been. We've lost a lot of people this mm -hmm. year. And because of COVID, we have not celebrated their legacy the way that we would have in other times. So it's just important that when we get a chance to, to say thank you and to think about folks that we do so. So yeah. you, know, you also had the entire memorial for all the COVID losses, but we've lost so many other people just because people have been passing and we haven't been able to grieve appropriately. Yeah. Can I just say something real quick? Yes. People are um, people are saying, well, you know, people didn't know that he was sick. And so people were making fun of him online and you oh, know, Chad. looking at mm -hmm. his appearance, Chadwick's appearance online and making fun of him. And, you know, if only they had known. And this is a call to action. Can we stop tearing people down like that online? There is something about this teardown culture that is so sick. Do you have to know somebody is dying? If I saw somebody who I knew and cared about and they were really thin, my first response would not be laughter. And I think we got to get to that. Um, you know, you don't have to know somebody's going through something to show them love. Um, can we get to at least elevating a beloved community? We can agree, we can disagree, but there's a hatefulness or an angry spirit out there that we've got to really combat um, because it hurts my soul to know that in his final days he was um, attacked for his illness. In the words of the of the now disgraced talk show host Ellen DeGeneres, let us be kind to one another everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We want you to catch the wave. Have a good night everybody.